The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we have the incredible privilege of coming back again this week as we have for a number of weeks and looking and considering the greatest sermon that's ever been preached by the greatest preacher that's ever lived and preached a sermon. That we began in the fall together our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of looking at Christ as he was establishing uh, his earthly ministry and, as it were, his kingdom uh, in this world. When he said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is established now. And in that, he began to preach a kingdom prayer, a kingdom sermon, saying this is how we understand life in the kingdom. We understand who we are in the Beatitudes, that we are, are most uh, to uh, be, as it were, uh, folks would be most jealous of the believer. For blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the meek, blessed uh, are those who know Christ for what we gain in him and have been given in him. And the disciples, the twelve, and then the greater group of disciples were around Christ because they realized that their lives now were being changed and impacted by this man, by Christ, the true king, the Messiah. And they had to now learn everything fresh and new. It was, an incredibly hum, it was an incredibly humbling experience for them, and it is for all of us who come into relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're first and foremost thankful that you're here with us today. Maybe you're tipping your toe back into church. Maybe it's something that you've never done. But I want you to hear this first and foremost, and by way of reminder to those of us who are followers of Christ, Christianity and discipleship with Christ is the most humbling adventure you'll ever be on. Because what you're saying is at the very onset of it, you're saying, I can't save myself. Only a humble and contrite person will and can say that. Uh, the world says, no, you can, you can do whatever you put your mind to. You can be whomever you want to be uh, in the world. And we apply that spiritually as well. Oh, you can save yourself. You can be good enough. Uh, you can do enough good things to where at the end of the day, your good is going to outweigh your bad. And God, in his cosmic uh, judgment, uh, will look and say, okay, you barely squeaked by, but you squeaked by. Or maybe you're hoping that as you've made it through undergraduate studies or elementary school or high school or whatever studies you have been involved in, that God's going to grade on a curve. That though you failed, he's somehow going to make you feel better and give you a C, and a C gets in. But the problem is that for, for God, that it's perfection alone. And so humbly, we have to come and say we can't get in on our own. And then once we are in his kingdom, accepting Christ as our Savior, coming and being saved by His blood, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through His once and for all sacrifice on the cross that we are now justified in Him just as if I had never sinned. All of our sins uh, paid for on the cross, given the perfect righteousness of Christ, adopted as daughters and sons of the King. Here's what we realize and here's what the disciples realized. We don't know how to do life in the kingdom You've told us now who we are, but all we know is life in another kingdom. 
And this kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. This kingdom is where last goes first and where first goes last and powerful are not up front. Powerful are in the back and the wealthy who cares about wealth and you hang out with the marginalized people and hope is given to the despondent and it's all turned upside down. And the disciples were there with Jesus going, teach us how to pray. We don't even know how to talk in the kingdom. We see you go out with your dad uh, at night and in the evenings and you spend all night in prayer with your heavenly father and we don't know what to say. We run out of words. We get tired. It's been a long day fishing and following you around and seeing people, you know, getting healed and doing all of this. And you then go spend all night. And when you come down from the mountain in the morning, you're not fatigued and cranky. You're energized. Because you've been in the presence of your Father. We don't understand that. Teach us to pray. That's what we're looking at now. Is this incredible pattern prayer. A disciple's prayer, not the Lord's prayer. Christ would never have prayed this prayer. But this is the prayer that he gives to us. To pattern our prayers. And so picking up in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 6. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Jesus began uh, last week uh, with this incredible shift. He said, here's how you begin your prayers. Our Father who is in heaven. Now a good Jew would have known that the word Father was only used a few times uh, and it was corporately sent. Chris was teaching us last week about that. Uh, And we understood that Jesus, however, had a different intimacy with God the Father. He spoke of him in terms uh, that were tremendous and were revolutionary, uh, uh, as it were, for the people who were with Jesus because he was saying to them over and over and over again uh, in the Gospels, my father, Abba, most reverent dad, most intimate of relationships, our father who art in heaven. So the basis of prayer, the entrance point of prayer is within relationship with God, that deep intimacy uh, of knowing God as father. And for some of you, That's an incredibly difficult place to pass. You get stuck there. Because your earthly fathers, in all of what they tried to do good, wounded you. 
Some didn't seem to try to do any good and deeply wounded you. And the rest of them did a pretty good job, but still wounded us. Still did things, and we look, and we can't seem to see God as Father. And God is saying, as it were, remove your earthly father for a moment and look at the true father, and then let the true father interpret your earthly father, not the other way around. Don't use your earthly father to interpret your heavenly father. Look at the true father first, from which all fatherhood comes. And look at him and see what he is like. And Christ was saying, this father, he's intimate. That you get to go in and have relationship with him. But Jesus, again, being so incredible uh, as the preacher, he knew right where humanity goes. We become too familiar. We take it down way too many notches. We say, oh, he's father, he's dad, he's the cosmic Santa Claus. We can kind of punch him on the shoulder and just goof off with him and call him by his first name. I remember when my sons tried to do that. Hey, Bill. Who are you talking to? Well, I'm talking to you. Sorry. You get to call me dad. Not only out of the intimacy of Chris talked last week, there's only three people in the world who get to call me dad. And I love hearing that. But also out of the fact that, hey, I am your dad, and, but I'm not your best friend. I'm not designed to be your best friend. I'm designed to be your dad. And so Christ understood that as we come into the fatherhood of God, he said, hey, enter in with this understanding of fatherhood, but recognize who this father is. Hallowed be his name. C.S. Lewis brought that to life in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, when, uh, they, when, he was, when the question was asked, well, is Aslan safe, the, the lion, the, the God Christ figure? And the response was, of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's what Jesus is saying here. God is good. He is your Father. But do not diminish Him and do not diminish His character so much so that you lose His transcendence, that you lose His, his otherness, that you lose His gravitas, as it were. You have to have both of those in tension and in balance within your life. That He is our Father. That we have access to Him. But He's also our Creator. And there is the creature-creator distinction that's in there. And we live within that place. So we have to keep both aspects in the forefront of our thoughts and in of our minds. And so what we're going to look at this morning briefly are, are three parts of this idea of hallowing God's name. Not Halloweening, not hollering, hallowing. How many of you use the word hallow this week in a sentence other than praying the prayer? Not one of you. It's not a word that we use. So we're going to define the word. We're going to help understand the word a little bit better uh, of what does it mean. We're going to understand the primacy of God's name. Three things that use the word primacy. The primacy of his name, uh, the primacy of his name in our prayers, and the primacy of his name in our lives. So first we're going to establish the primacy of his name, then see how that affects our prayer life because that's the context uh, of the passage today. And then how does it affect our lives? So the first thing, the primacy of God's name. So what's in a name? What's the big deal about a name? In the Jewish culture and Eastern culture, names matter much more significantly than they do in a Western culture. Western culture has moved, as it were, the pendulum has shifted, uh, that we choose names uh, based on uh, a soap opera that we like. 
based on a record uh, industry person that we like, based on a star uh, that we know, based on a place that we visited uh, when we were younger. Uh, and we pick names, and they have some significance, but they don't necessarily carry with it much weightiness. They don't, they don't say much about the person. But in a Jewish culture, the name that you gave to your child carried with it weight. For it signified something about the character of that individual. That's why when you see God encounter people within the scriptures, oftentimes he renames them. He says, your name now, because of your encounter with me, is going to be different. You are no longer Abram, you are Abraham. You are no longer Saul, you are Paul. You are, are, are no longer, as it were, uh, Peter, you're rock. You are Petros uh, in that Simon Peter, that you are more than what you understand about yourself, for I see something in you. And it's the same way now in this sense. God is saying there's something significant about my name, for my name and names, they communicate something of my attributes and of my character and the very aspects and dynamics of who I am. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, trust, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust not in the Lord. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. What is he saying? The psalmist is saying, we trust in the name which is the picture of all the dynamics of who he is. So what we're saying through that is we trust in the Lord we trust in God, who is our Father. And the names of God throughout all the Scriptures reveal something about His being. Think about some of the names that have been given to Him. This is not an exhaustive list, but I'd encourage you to do a study on the names of God. There's some wonderful studies out there uh, for you to utilize and to see. But think about even the name uh, that no Jew would ever speak, the name Yahweh. It's the name that they would say Jehovah, uh, but it was the name of the self-existent, pre-existent God given, as it were, to Moses when he said, who shall I tell Pharaoh as sending me? Tell him I am sent you. That I am he who created. I am pre-existent. I am. And Moses realized at that moment, I am undone. I am in trouble. I'm on holy ground uh, in this sense because God's name, that name is self-existent. That God is Jehovah Shalom. God is our peace. Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. The one who provides. Uh, Jehovah Rapha. God is the one who heals us. God is all of these things. He is Jehovah Nisi. He is El Shaddai. He is El Elyon. He is Adonai. And He is Abba. Dearest Father. All of those are His name. And he's saying, my name it has primacy in your life. My name, you need to know my name. Do you know his name? Do you know all those different dynamics about him? Maybe you can say, well, I, I know him as provider. I've seen him do that, but I don't know him as father. Or I know him as father, but I don't know him as my banner, uh, the one who goes out and I'm under his banner on the field. I, I don't know him as the Lord of hosts, the host of all of the armies of heaven who defends me. I, I don't know him as my strong tower. I, I know him only here. What he's inviting you into is to take apart his name. And to allow, as it were, the beauty of the Holy Spirit to hit within the prism of His name and let it explode into a million colors in front of you. 
and park yourself in those different dynamics and bask in the light of one and go, God, I want to focus on the fact today that you are my peace, that I have peace with you, that I have peace in my own heart. I can have peace with one another. You are my peace, my shalom, Jehovah Shalom, that you are my Jehovah Rapha, you are my healer, that I'm going to park over in that light and I'm going to stand there and I'm going to sit and bask there and be reminded of all that your name conveys about who you are, that it carries with it an importance so much so that God, when he was establishing his kingdom in Exodus chapter 20, and he gave 10 rules for his kingdom, 10 laws, as it were, for his kingdom. Number three, you shall not take my name in vain. My name is important. Do not corrupt it. Do not take anything from it. And he adds a curse onto it. For if you take my name in vain, you will not be held without guilt. That should just make us pause for a moment. Of how do we view his name? Do you see him and his name as representing all of the beauty of his attributes? All that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. So here's a little assignment, as it were, from point number one. Spend some time with the name of God. Parse it out. Go look at all of it. Ask yourself, what dynamic, what name do I need this week? For some of you, you need to recognize that God is your provider. And you may go, Bill, I live in a big house. I have a lot of cars. Uh, I've got everything. I know he's my provider. No, you're terrified. Because you read all the time. You check the stock market every day. Because you're wondering if God is really your provider. Will he provide for me in my old age? For some of you, you're questioning, you understand God in a lot of ways, but maybe your spouse has walked out, maybe your parent has walked out, maybe your loved one has gone to be with the Lord. You need to understand that he is Nisi, he is your banner, he covers you, that he has you in that way. So work on his name in those places and know the primacy of his name. And then once you recognize the primacy of his name, it will begin to inform the manner in which you approach him in prayer. That's what Jesus was talking about. Our Father, who art in heaven, and just the word our, by the way, uh, Chris touched on it, but I, I want to make sure you understand this. What a great word choice. Our Father. So whose Father is He? So that means He is the person next to you who loves Jesus. He is their Father as well. So guess what that makes you guys? Family. Siblings. The Bible doesn't give a lot of great pictures of siblings getting along. But the beauty of the gospel is that our Father and His incredible justifying adopting love brings us together as brothers and sisters and it takes away race, it takes away politics, it takes away gender, it takes away these things. Those things are still there. But it means that those are no longer going to define me and they are no longer going to block my relationship with you. That I see you now as brother and sister in Christ because he's our father who art in heaven. Now, hallowed be thy name. So in prayer, we come. And here's what we learn about this Lord's Prayer. Again, Jesus, uh, he makes me question whether I should preach at all 
Because you look at this and you go, wow, right out of the gate. He starts with Christ, or starts with the Father. We enter in through the fatherhood of God, through that incredible blessing that we have. And then he begins and he has seven petitions. Seven, significant number within the scriptures. And then the first three are all about God. Three, a pretty significant number within the scriptures. And those first three are all about God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Then petition four, five, six, and seven. Some say only six, some say seven. That doesn't matter. But here's how I understand it. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Four petitions there. But guess where your prayer life starts? Guess where your entrance into conversation with God starts? With Him. You and your needs are secondary. Me and my needs are secondary. That makes perfect sense in American culture, doesn't it? Because that's what American culture is all about. No, I would like for you to go first. I would like for you to have more food than me. I I would like for you to have more at the end of the day. I will happily give up something of myself and submit and subvert my wants, dreams, and aspirations and desires to yours. That's why I warned singles when I was a single pastor and even today, be careful of why you want to be married Because here's what marriage is supposed to look like. Marriage is two people looking at the other person and saying this, I am now submitting myself to you out of love for Jesus Christ. I'm taking my wants, hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and I'm setting them down so that yours take primacy over mine. That's easy to do, isn't it? Those of you who are married or have been married, is that easy? Not a chance. Not a chance. And so here we have this assault again on the human heart and the human ego. And the assault is this. Start with God. It is more concerning about His glory, His kingdom, and His will than your bread and your daily nourishment. Than it is about your relationships with other people. Than it is about anything else. It is more important. That is primary. Now, don't turn this into law, by the way. That says, oh, now I've got to start every prayer this way. When Peter hopped out of the boat and he was walking over towards Jesus and he was right there so close to Jesus that when he began to sink, Jesus didn't do some yoga gadget arm and throw elastic arm halfway across the ocean and grab him. He was right there next to him. And Peter started to sink because he started to look around. Now, Peter, having been taught this prayer, didn't go, oh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus, help! He started with Jesus' help. So don't turn this into law, but it is a pattern that says this, as we approach God, our greatest concern is about Him, not us. As we approach God in prayer, our greatest concern is about Him and what He can do, not about us and what we can do. Our prayer life is to be guided and shaped by the Lord's own teaching, and in His teaching, He establishes the pattern of God first. Folks, that's the primary. You see, the God-given order of our prayers is to consider Him first. For so many of us, not only do we not consider Him first, we don't consider Him at all in our prayer life. It is all the last four petitions. Father, do this for me. Do this and help me here. Help me do all these verses starting with Father in heaven Do whatever you need to do that your name would be hallowed in my life. 
I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to be established. Now, once you're at work doing that, Father, by the way, I'm hungry, or I have a daily need, or I have this, but I want to make sure that we take care of the big rocks first, because what happens is we fill the tank with all the small things, and there's no room for the big rocks eventually in that tank. You see, the God-given order of our prayers is to consider Him first, His name first, and it begins to interpret and control everything else that follows. Then we understand daily bread, daily bread. If it comes from God for His glory, from His kingdom, how do we understand daily bread? How do we understand all of this? Considering God in His name and His kingdom and His will comes before considering everything else. Our main concern in life should be that God be treated as God, even in our prayers. Pause there for a moment. Here's your assignment from point number two. Consider how you pray. Consider how you approach God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, how we come into His presence. Do we start with Him being primary or with us being primary? His wants desires, our wants, desires. For most of us, if we are honest, we start with us. It's not bad to petition him for our needs, but make sure that you allow this biblical pattern to inform how you even pray. But that's not all this is about. It's not just about your prayer life. Hallowed be thy name. It starts with those four things in the pattern. Now it moves to a primacy of God, not just in our prayer life, but in our lives in general. So now the primacy of God in our lives. Hallowed be your name. Again, joking around. None of us use the word hallowed this week. To hallow means to set apart. It it comes, the the word uh, comes from a root Uh, that would be found in the root word kavod, uh, which is the Hebrew word for glory. And it's saying, Lord, I want your name to be glorified. I want your name to carry weight. And recognize this, this is written uh, in the passive voice. And so it's a petition, not a command. It's not saying, hallow his name. It's saying, us praying, Lord, would you hallow your name? Would you glorify your name? Because you're the only one who can do that. You're the only one. It's your name, your kingdom, your will. You need to be the primary mover and shaker in this first part of the equation, not me in the midst of it. It's the petition, uh, ask God in the most reverent possible way, something like this. Our Father who is in heaven, Please make your real identity known so that we and others will recognize and honor you as you really are. That's the first petition. Would you make your identity known so that I and others will recognize you and worship you for who you really are? Friends, only God can reveal God. He doesn't need our help. He is the one who is moving Let's be careful not to usurp what is primarily his alone. And he's saying this, hallowed be thy name. Father, I want your name to carry with it a weightiness 
I want your name to be set apart. I want your name to have a gravitas. I want your name to have a primacy in my life. I want your name to be seen before even my own name. I want all of this. I want it to be significant and important. This was the consuming prayer and the consuming thread of Jesus's life. Because when you do read the prayer that he actually prayed in John 17, listen to this language. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in John 12, 28, he prayed, Father, glorify your name It was the driving beat of the life of our Savior who said, my greatest desire is to bring glory and honor to the name of my Father. Therefore, I am willing to submit myself to Him, though equal with Him in power and in glory as the second person of the Trinity. I submit myself to Him, and I will go to the cross, not my will, but Thine be done, for it is through Your will that glory will come. My will would be not to be crushed under the weight of your wrath. My will would not to be pierced. My will would not to be beaten. My will would be all of those things. But I know something that is I have to submit my will to your will. And your will is that you would be glorified. Therefore, it's mine as well. Father, glorify yourself through my life. We are to give reverence and honor and substance to the name that is above all names. Friends, the greatest need of the world is to know the primal weightiness of God. The greatest need of this world is to see the weightiness of God. For the world, it says, is described like chaff that the wind takes and blows away. And the only thing that chaff is good for within the biblical illustration is to be gathered up and burned. Destroyed forever. The world has no weight. Friends, if you have given yourself to the world and to its kingdom, you then have no weight. And it says you will be blown about. But God is saying this, give my name the weight, the primal weightiness that it deserves, the glory that it deserves. And in that weightiness, that glory takes root within you and you yourself become weighty and you then stay on the threshing floor and you then are used for honorable purposes and not to be blown away. What the world needs from the Christian church is not Christianity light. What the world needs is not Yahweh light. What the world needs are believers who are passionate about the weightiness of God in our own lives. And we live within that reality to say God is not someone to be trivialized. He is not someone uh, to to be played with or tried on like a jacket that you can then take off at another time. The great need of the world is for God to become weightier and more significant in their estimation and view. And guess how the world sees that weightiness? You're the mirror, and I'm the mirror. 
or the window or whatever you want to use. That picture of saying they see it through us. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. Oh, that my life in this world would be the magnifying glass, would bring out, it would show the enormous nature of the God whom I serve, the God who has saved my life. That I would not be one who breaks the third commandment, because this is exactly what the third commandment says. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in the Hebrew lightly. Not in vain, lightly. Don't use his name as if it bears no weight. One of the most challenging and disappointing parts of my life in ministry is spending times and times with people, men who I have discipled over 20-something years now of ministry, and watching them at times come to me and basically say, I'm going to do this. I know it's wrong. I know it's not what God would have but I am going to do this. I am going to live in this way. My heart breaks because what that person is saying is God's name bears no weight any longer with me. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because my name, my glory, my happiness, my goodness, that's what's most important to me. And it breaks my heart and it terrifies me that that individual and at times myself One day we'll stand before a God who says, I am jealous about one thing more than anything else, and I will not share my glory, my weightiness of my name with anybody else. And folks, what the world needs and what you need more than anything else is for God to take up a substantive role within your life and cause every decision that we make to come through that mesh. Before we take the next drink, before we smoke the next smoke, before you dance the next dance, before you drive the next drive, before you type with your thumbs the next time, before you spend any of the money, before you move in with somebody or move out with somebody or crawl in bed with somebody or crawl out of bed with somebody, get married, get divorced, do whatever, all of it we need to say, God, how is this going to affect the reputation of your name in the world? Not mine. The church is bought into a lie that somehow if we dumb down the weightiness of God, the non-believing world will come running in. The unbelieving world doesn't need anything lighter. It needs something with weight. And you have it. And I have it. There is an honor and a dignity. Folks, let me give you a hint about preaching. A sermon can never be preached that hasn't first been preached through the heart and the soul of the pastor. And I have sat with this this week. And I have failed to appropriate properly the honor and the dignity that has been given to me to be called by the name of my King and my Creator and my God. And I have not taken it seriously enough And I have not taken that weight when temptation comes and I've decided to go sin over here or sin over there and made willful choices to go my own direction. I have not taken the weightiness of God and allowed it to somehow impact my decision-making process. I've shot off the email. I've fired off the voicemail. I've made hand gestures to a wonderful person on a circle going around the island. 
I've been angry. I've been sad. I've questioned the integrity of God. And all of those things, it comes back to saying, I've been honored with His name to carry its weight, and I need to see that. And you need to see that. Instead of going, I don't care at all. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'll get into heaven one day. Folks, the beauty of this passage is this. That we hallow the name of God through our worship here every week of gathering together. I'm I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. But there's an awful lot of people who never, Christians, who never darken the door of a church. Who never worship God. There's other things that are more important. God is saying, I have primacy in your worship, both public and private. Does it move you in your worship? I'm not saying that we have to have the most emotional worship in the world, but we should have the most meaningful. Jonathan Edwards says, I don't care if you cry or if you laugh, I just want your affections moved towards God. A friend sent me a joke a few months back from Babylon B, the little satirical, the satirical website that said the motion-sensitive lights went off in a Presbyterian worship service. <laughs> that it went dark. Because in our worship, there's no passion. There's no weight. I lived in Hawaii suffering for Jesus back in 91 uh, when I was with Youth with a Mission. And as you began to know the native Hawaiians, they called white people haoles. Now, haole is not a term of endearment. It's a term that actually comes from our predecessors, those who were missionaries who came to those pagan islands presenting to these people who needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ as they danced around the fire and had these times of celebration. And we came in, and we and our ancestors said, come and worship the most powerful God in all the world, the universe who created all things. He raised these islands out of the sea. He established them from the foundations. He's done all of this in Jesus Christ. Now let's come and worship Him. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Oh God, we love you a lot. Really, really, really. And they said of those white missionaries, they're howlies. They are without breath. They're without life. Folks, our worship can never be without breath. We are worshiping the one whom angels are worshiping now, who all of the saints who've gone before us are worshiping in his presence. That angels, it says, peer in and wish they knew what it was that's so exciting about what we do. And we come and go, eh, I mean, whatever. We see it in our worship. And I've got to move quickly. We see it in our prayer life. We see it through our lives. In the manner in which we live. If you're a student, it's the manner in which you study. If you're a single person, it's the manner in which you date. If you're a married person, it's the manner uh, in which you love your spouse. If you're a parent, it's the manner in which you love your children. If you're a child, it's the manner in which you love your parents. If you drive a car, how do you drive? If you go out, how many of you are going to go eat out at a restaurant probably in the next week? How about today? A few of you. Don't come here and proclaim the great weightiness of God and how awesome he is and go to the table, hold hands and say, God, you're great and you're awesome and then give a chintzy tip that brings the name of the Lord down. Show in your generosity even there those little things of how we live our lives. 
through our speech, through our typing. Some of us need to just shut down social media, by the way. And through our affections. What are we drawn to? Folks, this is one of those sermons that's hard. But it's one of those sermons that's great. Because Christ is telling us, this is what's most significant for you. And it's the name of my Father. He gives you that dignity. He gives you that significance. He gives you that weightiness. And he is giving it to you so that you can show the world around you the beauty of this God. Oh, come, let us magnify the Lord together. Let us exalt his name. Let's pray.